we do. Well, if you got your Bibles this morning, we're continuing the series, Why? You notice we put those words, beliefs and values and actions. That's because what we believe will lead to the values that we embrace, and the values that we embrace will result in the actions or the behaviors of our lives. So many times church is all about behavior modification. And that's going about it all the wrong way. We're not about behavior modification. It's all about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith, that trust in his word, that getting in on the life he has for us, causes us to value what God values And that ultimately guides our behaviors. So when we start with behavior modification, we do something that is often not real and certainly not lasting. So take your Bibles. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. If you found it, let's stand as we read God's Word together, answering the question, why we believe in the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of human life. Now, Back in January on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I spent time, uh, very little time that Sunday, but I did kind of a a shotgun sermon where I hit everything that Sanctity of Life touches from, uh, you name it, the unborn to the elderly to uh, the problem with racism, the problem with us not reaching across ethnic boundaries, and uh, I kind of touched on everything and gave very little attention that Sunday to the unborn, and it it deserves and demands today with all that's going on in the world around us, it deserves us explaining why we believe in the sanctity of human life, why we are so passionate about defending the unborn. And so we'll touch on just a little of what the Bible says about that. There's so much more that we'll have time to get into today, but at least enough to hopefully inform and motivate us to be more committed and and more prayerful about this subject. So you found your place there, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. We're looking at this Christmas story before Jesus is born here, but also the story of John the Baptist. And it says in verse 39, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She has, she, then she exclaimed with a loud cry, You are the, the blessed or the most blessed of women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. She who has believed is blessed because what was spoken to her by the Lord will be fulfilled. And so here's this precious life, two precious lives. We're going to focus on John the Baptist this time in the life of uh, this life in the, in the womb of Elizabeth and then would be born and live. And we'll talk a little bit about his life as well as we seek to describe why we believe in the sanctity of human life. And let's pray together. As I pray, you pray that God would guide my heart, my mind, Give me the words and the wisdom I need to communicate this with the love and the grace that I need. Father, may this be so. May I seek to honor you. May I seek to equip the church in all that I say. And Lord, may we show forth the grace and the love of Christ when we deal with this subject. The power of redemption without compromising the truth and conviction 
of our beliefs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to preface some of my remarks this morning by saying that if you or someone you know and love has experienced the, what we will look at as an atrocity, a tragedy called abortion, let me say that God's grace reaches to the lowest place. God brings forgiveness. God brings healing. God brings restoration. And I want you to know if that's something you Someone you love, someone in your family's experienced, this pastor loves you, cares about you deeply. I'm not here to condemn. Are there certain things that the Bible condemns that we'll speak to? Certainly, and we have to speak the truth in love. But I want you to know there's redemption, there's restoration. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, ultimately denying the Bible's testimony through the Holy Spirit of who Jesus Christ is. And so there is salvation and forgiveness for all of our sins, and I thank God for that. And so I want to preface this with, with that, that I pray that you will hear the love of God and the grace of God in everything that I say. Um, secondly, I want to challenge church. Let's be sure that when we communicate these things, that we do so, speaking the truth, but as Paul told the church at Ephesus, speaking the truth in love, with much love. People do not, we talked about this a moment in our life group, I was with the college students this morning, people do not care what you know unless they know that you care, and we need to demonstrate that. We also are familiar with other passages of Scripture we could have turned to. I'll reference one of those briefly, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, for it was you, speaking of the Lord, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably or fearfully, awesomely, and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned. Highlight that. And planned before a single one of them began. There is no such thing as an unplanned child in God's eyes. Now, as I look at real people with real problems in a real world, I know that there are a lot of surprises. Amen? There are a lot of times that we go, whoa, wow. Didn't know God had that in mind. And so you may have some of those surprises that you celebrate Every day and thank God for. But it didn't catch God by surprise. It is his grace. It is his reward according to Psalm 127. I could also reference Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 when it says, Before I formed you, I knew you. He told Jeremiah, I had consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations from the womb. God had his hand on Jeremiah. In Exodus... Chapter 21, we read about if a couple of men find themselves fighting, horseplay, whatever you want to call it, and they bump into or hurt or harm a pregnant woman and they cause her to deliver prematurely, we're told that if the baby lives, then 
No major problem, but the husband of the wife who gave birth to this premature child can now set basically any amount he wants to as a fine that has to be paid back for what just took place. But if the baby dies in the process, life for life, it says. And so God takes the protection of the unborn very, very seriously in Scripture. All of what we read in the Bible teaches us that life is sacred from the moment of conception, that nothing catches God by surprise. But Luke, remember his vocation. Luke was a physician. Luke, this doctor, is able to allow us to feel the joy and the pain of this mother and the child who would find purpose in suffering in his own lifetime. And so we'll speak to both his days before his birth and after his birth this morning. The first thing I want to share with you when it comes to answering why we believe in the sanctity of all human life and are so passionate about defending the unborn is this. There are sacred expressions of life in the womb, and we see that in the life of John the Baptist. And this is revealing to us something of personhood. These sacred expressions of life tell us that this is a person in Elizabeth's womb. And so in verse 41, we read just a moment ago, it says that the baby leaped. The word for baby here is the same word that Dr. Luke would use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When you get into chapter 2, he uses the same word baby twice, once to describe after Jesus was born, not before he was born, but after Jesus was born, when he was in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, it described him as the same word, baby. John the Baptist is given the same description, not another name. And then later, we see also in chapter 2 that when the shepherds came, they saw the baby. And so speaking of Jesus, as a baby who had been born, The same word was used to describe John the Baptist when he was still in his mother's womb. This is a baby. Let's use the language God uses to describe this season of life. This is a human being. This is a child. This is a baby. So let's call it what the Bible calls it. Let's call it what it is. Then in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15, Dr. Luke uses the same term that he used for pre-born John the Baptist. He uses the same word to describe the infants that they were bringing to Jesus for him to bless. People were bringing their babies, their infants, to be blessed by Jesus. And so we want to use the language that Dr. Luke uses here. And we're told here in, in verse 41 that the baby leaps within the womb. Why did John the Baptist leap within Elizabeth's womb. Well, we're told later in verse 44 why he leaped, that there was this overcoming presence of the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth when she hears the voice of Mary, but also when the baby hears Mary's voice, the baby leaps, it says in verse 44, for joy. There's the expression of emotion right there in the womb, leaping for joy. Wouldn't that have been a a wonderful moment to experience? Now, I'm just curious how many moms 
who have had a uh, child, have carried a child before, said, I know there were times I felt that baby jump out of enthusiasm within me. You felt that before? That is something real, and, and it's something you can describe having experienced. Now, what a lot of people may not know is that by five weeks, five and a half weeks, there is brain activity in this preborn child that is detectable as well as a fetal heartbeat that is detectable. That's why it shouldn't surprise us or bother us to know that laws are coming into place to detect a fetal heartbeat and say, wait a minute, we have life. Because when it comes to dealing with end-of-life moments and we've been there, we know that they start looking for brainwaves and a heartbeat when it comes to making some end-of-life decisions. And those same standards should also be applied in making decisions when it comes to when life begins. Now, I have a biblical standard that goes even farther than that, and that goes to the moment of conception. But even if I were not a Christian, I would want to at least practice good science and say that if there's heartbeats and brainwaves, and by five and a half weeks, many have not even discovered that they're expecting Doctors are quick to offer some of the following results of research to those who plan to keep their baby. That emotions of joy and anger. Did you realize that? Just as a baby can leap for joy, a baby can get angry. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. Some of the ladies who have been expecting mothers, you felt the anger before too, right? They take it out on you sometimes. But that researchers have shown us that these babies are able to feel joy and anger when responding to certain things. A sense of touch by the age of eight weeks within the womb. A sense of taste by 13 weeks. I don't know how that taste gets to them or what mom can eat that upsets them, but researchers tell us that by 13 weeks, They can hear the sound of a mom's heartbeat. They can hear the rumbling of mom's intestines. (laughs) They hear all of that. They can hear music outside the womb and respond to that music. I mean, Pastor Jeff, when we have expectant mothers in the worship service, as they're learning to worship and hear the music, those kids are already being programmed to worship. That's why dads should sing to that expectant mother with that mouth as close to the belly as possible, singing praises because the child is beginning to hear and experience and respond to those things. Even as early as 13 weeks, 17 weeks, certainly they've said they're hearing music outside of the womb. Expressions of life. Now, and I won't ask him to come up here, but if I were to ask Stan Elrod about hunter safety this morning, and I remember taking the hunter safety course, I won't tell you how many years ago. But if I were to ask him, hey, if I'm sitting in a deer stand 
And I know that a big buck has been using in a particular area, but it's kind of grown up with bushes and shrubs. Would I stand, have permission to say, that's probably a deer and not a person, so can I fire into the brush? Is that okay? Can I just take a brush out? Of course not, not unless I want to be arrested, right? We're told when we take that hunter safety course, and I remember particularly watching certain slideshows and videos of tragedies that took place because somebody was so certain that that was a deer moving in the bushes, and they found out later it was a family member. It was a father or a child or someone coming to them knowing where they were hunting. And so you're told, if you don't see it, do not take a brush shot. If it could possibly be a human being, you don't take a brush shot. We know that. We know that that is crazy, that is ridiculous, but we have an entire generation of Americans that are saying, hey, we don't really know what that is there. And so let everybody decide for themselves whether or not they're going to risk taking a brush shot. And so we watch those videos in that hunter safety course, and I'm watching people heartbroken when they find out, oh, no, I shot a family member. Oh, no, I shot a human being. I shot a friend. What's going to happen when this world stands before God one day and they realize, oh, no, it was a human being. And I pray to God we live long enough to see us come to a realization of that. And as a church, we're going to have to show a lot of love in that moment because a lot of people are going to have their eyes open, Lord willing, to what we've been doing. And it's going to take time to heal, time to overcome. That's the best case scenario. Worst case is that we not wake up to this crisis until the Lord comes back and we stand before him. I want to be one who has spoken the truth when that day comes. Why do we worship? Why do we want joyful experiences? Why do we want to sing? Why do we want to abhorm harmful behavior during times of expectancy? We want to protect that precious life. The world will say, look, church, it's okay for you to believe what you want to believe, but please, mind your own business. You can believe that way, but don't force it on me. Just mind your own business. And it sounds a lot like when God came to Cain and said, hey, where's Abel? When Cain had taken his life, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? That's not my responsibility. And the Lord said, no, his blood is crying out to me from the earth. And there's blood crying out from this nation today. And we can say, hey, listen, don't push your belief off on anybody else. But we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And every time Jesus defined who our neighbor is, it was to the vulnerable people that need us. And I'll come back to that statement a little bit later, but Let me move to our second point this morning. John the Baptist would be born and he would have sorrowful experiences in life, sorrowful experiences of life in this world. And I wanted you to see this morning in Scripture, there are redeeming purposes in sorrowful experiences in a sin-fallen world. There's a redeeming purpose there. We're created with a purpose. 
Scripture tells us again and again that that primary purpose is to glorify God in all of life's pursuits. Man's chief end or primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so even in sorrowful experiences of suffering in a sin-fallen world, we can give God glory. In chapter 1 of Luke, going back to verses 10 through 17, we see this description of what John the Baptist's life would be like at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Zechariah, that is, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Can you imagine? Here's John later pointing people to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says in verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. I might would add, and in the suffering of Elijah as well. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. He would be a man with a mission, we're told, clothed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey in a life of uh, a desert wanderer, homeless and impoverished according to worldly standards even of that day. He would never touch wine or beer to ease the pain that he would experience in the scourge of this life of sacrifice. He would humbly point people to Jesus instead. He would be in prison. In Luke chapter 7, you can read about his imprisonment. And he would have doubts and he would have fears that we have in this life, wondering, was it worth it all to do this, to suffer like this, and now to be in jail, in prison, and suffering for the glory of God in some way? And he would even send his disciples and say, listen, I've got to know Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? I've got to know. i got this right as his soul would be tormented in this moment of facing death. And ultimately, he would be beheaded. He would give his very life because he stood for truth and righteousness. And so the world would look and say, what a waste. What a wa-. It would be, have been better if John the Baptist had never been born than to do all of that and to suffer all that for nothing. But Jesus would say of him, hey, there's never been a better man born of woman than John the Baptist. Because God had a plan even in his suffering. God had a plan even in his tragic early death. And so this world would try to say, for those of us who are pro-lifers, but you mean you would sentence someone to a life of suffering. Romans 8, 18 tells us that the gospel sheds light on that. The sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glories that will be revealed. If we don't find redeeming purpose and value in suffering, then this world is just a hopeless mess. But the gospel offers this, that there is life in Christ and purpose in suffering in Christ. 
preachers back in the 1980s, I remember this as a teenager, when we kind of woke up to what was happening with abortion in the world. And I remember preachers saying, if we don't take a stand on this now, if we don't speak to this now, there will come a time where we are finding those who are going through seasons of suffering and we're giving them things to assist the process of suicide. And I was like, no way, we wouldn't do that. They said, then the elderly and the hurting and those who have certain handicaps will be assisted to end their life prematurely. We're seeing that. Now, there were some false reports, but some reports nonetheless that covered a a true story. Some of them just got the story wrong about a 17-year-old girl in the Netherlands. You might have read the story or seen the story this past week whose life tragically came to an end. Some said at a uh, clinic designed for euthanasia. Others pointed out with a little bit of clarity that she had gone to the clinic at age 16, and the clinic at that time was not willing to help her And then at age 17, we read that she was permitted basically to starve herself to death. Tragic end to a life. As a young lady, she was abused, sexually abused, and and had severe PTSD and was struggling with anorexia. All these things that make your heart just go out to this young lady. Brokenhearted as we should be for the young lady. We should want to help people like that fight for life. I, I can't understand the level of suffering that some people endure in this life. In the midst of all that, the, the parts of the story that were true, not true, that we couldn't get our mind around, we still discovered something. For many of us, like me, the first time, that there are euthanasia clinics in the Netherlands where people as young as 12 years old can go, and if they can state a sufficient case for unbearable suffering, either emotionally or physically, then they can experience physician assisted suicide. So we're saying today in the world that there are some lives that just aren't worth living. Only the gospel can offer purpose in the midst of suffering. God help us to make the gospel a priority. Listen, I want to win the arguments of Scripture on why we believe with everybody and convince them that there's enough of that argumentative spirit within me, and sometimes I can get in the flesh, and I want to win that argument and say, yes, I was right. My wife can tell you I've got that problem. I want to win the argument and say, yes, I was right. But for them to embrace truth, they must first embrace Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has to be preeminent. Now, I want to give you some good news before we close. The good news is that many are acknowledging, thanks to science and technology even, many are acknowledging for the first time that there is life or that they're uncertainty, uncertain of whether or not there's life, but for the first time they're they're having to change their vocabulary a little bit because they see the same images that we see. But I'm telling you, they're repositioning those who would stand against the sanctity of life or repositioning themselves for a new argument. The new argument is this, and it's a more difficult argument to face, and I'm going to tell you how I believe we should respond. The new argument is not, no, 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 that's not a life, nor is it relativism. It's not a life to me, it is a life to you, and and whatever's right for me, they're not arguing that. The new argument is, okay, it's a life, but where are you hypocrites when it comes to standing for other lives? 
Where are you, church, when it comes to standing for those who are broken and impoverished and the refugee and the people that are hurting around the world, the people that are hungry, the people that are abused? Where are you when it comes to standing for those people? And so, church, don't talk to me about the sanctity of life in the womb until you care about everybody else. There's a lot of ways you can respond to that argument because that is, that's the new position of leverage in this fight for the lives of the unborn. They say, no, 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 you just want to control women. That's your, that could, that, there, there couldn't possibly be any other motivation that you just want to control the bodies of women. I have about five quick answers. Number one, we are heartbroken for those that we're accused of wanting to control. Listen, I don't I don't want to try to control somebody else's body. But I would tell a lady that's drunk with alcohol, give me the car keys. You don't need to drive. You could take somebody else's life. We don't want, listen, the people that I'm accused of, of making angry and wanting control are the people my heart breaks for in tears. If anything, I hate rejection. I want them to love me and receive me, but I'm not going to compromise the truth in order to get them to love me and receive me. I want them to be saved and experience the grace of God. I I spend time in tears for the people that I'm accused of hating and wanting control. Secondly, it's an issue of urgency when it comes to all of the other people in the world that we need to be caring about. Yes, we need to be caring about them, and you'll see in a moment that we are, but the younger people are, the more vulnerable they are. The younger people are, the less voice that they have. And if we need to speak more loudly for anyone, it's the unborn whose silent screams we can't hear outside the womb. And so we have to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. They can't march. They can't riot. They can't bang at a border. They have to have somebody to speak up for them because their voice can't be heard. And while we've got to care about everybody else, There's a level of urgency for those whose voice cannot be heard yet. Third, the broken, the impoverished, the hurting that are in the world that could have been aborted. They can all live a life, even in their suffering as we saw in the life of John the Baptist, they can all live a life that can be redeemed, that can overcome, and that can glorify God even in their suffering. But there's no hope if there's no right to life. Fourthly, I would respond and say, you may not realize this, but there are three, they'll say, oh, but all these kids that are in foster care today, and I thank God for our foster parents here at Trinity. But there are, under the age of 18, there are three times as many adopted children as there are kids in foster care in America today. And there are Christians waiting in line to adopt that are having to wait because of all kinds of red tape and loopholes that they have to jump through to adopt. But they are waiting in line to adopt. And then fifthly, I would respond and say, when it comes to caring for the others, did you realize that Christians are giving hundreds of billions of dollars to charities and serving at a much greater rate to minister to the broken and the hurting and the impoverished than those who are accusing us of not caring for that crowd. 
We're literally going around the world to minister to those who are hurting and broken and in need. So that argument doesn't hold water. It just simply doesn't hold water. I was reading this week, Tim Kimmel, who wrote a book entitled Little House on the Freeway. Anybody feel like you live there? (laughs) Little House on the Freeway. And he was telling the story about a dear friend and his friend's wife. Both had teenage children. He said, we went on a camping trip. And he said, I noticed that my friend was extremely quiet the whole time we were, he he was totally unlike him. He was always so positive and and outgoing and just kept the rest of us on fire, passionate Christian. He said, I noticed he was so quiet. He said, what's up with you? What's what's going on? And he said, well, you see, our, our teenage daughter started dating this guy. We didn't know the pressures and temptations were so severe she ended up getting pregnant. We didn't know it until we got a pamphlet in the mail from Planned Parenthood. I don't know if you've seen the movie Unplanned lately that exposes a lot of the tactics and the life of Abby Johnson. Great movie. Every Christian, probably above the age of 13, should see it. But anyway, this family had gotten the pamphlet from Planned Parenthood and they began to ask her about this, knowing where they stood on the issue. She admitted that she was expecting. They were wrestling with adoption. They were wrestling with keeping the baby. I want to read how Tim Kimmel ends this chapter in his story. He said, I asked Tom what they had decided to do. Would they keep the baby or put it up for adoption? That's when he delivered the blow. With the fire burning low, Tom, they're by a campfire here. Tom paused for a long time before answering. And when he spoke, he wouldn't look me in the eye. He said, we considered the alternatives, Tim. Weighed all the options. He took a deep breath. We finally made an appointment with the abortion clinic. I took her down there myself. I dropped the stick. I had been poking the coals, Tim Kimmel speaking here. I dropped the stick that I'd been poking the coals with and stared at Tom. Except for the wind and the trees, the snapping of our fire, it was quiet for a long time. I couldn't believe this was the same man who for years had been so outspoken against abortion. He and his wife had even volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center in his city. Heartsick, I pressed him about the decision. Tom then made a statement that captured the essence of his problem and the problem many others have in entering into genuine rest. In a mechanical voice, he said, I know what I believe, Tim, but that's different than what I had to do. I had to make a decision that had the least amount of consequences for the people involved. Just by the way he said that, I could tell my friend had rehearsed these lines over and over in his mind. And by the look in his eyes and the emptiness in his voice, I could tell his words sounded as hollow to him as they did to me. A lot of people just feel like they don't have an option. Many who have all the facts and know the truth. 
This world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, the church to be there for them in thick and in thin. They need the power of redemption. And while with with one arm we're, we're reaching around those who have made tragic choices and telling them we love them, with the other arm we've got to reach out to rescue all that we can for the glory of God. Now wrestle with a subject like this because the last thing I want to do is drive anyone who has been there farther from the gospel. I want them to know Jesus loves them. And when I saw the movie and read the story of Abby Johnson and realized that she had risen through the ranks of Planned Parenthood and some 22,000 babies had been aborted under her leadership, but she had come to faith in Christ. She had realized what she was doing was wrong. She discovered hope. That story alone told me, listen, there is hope. People can be saved. They can be forgiven and they can turn around. That's the message. It's the gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. That's the message we have to take to this world. We can do right by his spirit and his spirit alone. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask us just to...